Hey everyone and welcome back to the News Agent Podcast. My name is Andrea Wilmington and I'm the Senior Content Strategist at Good Lord. Today's podcast is a recording of our webinar that's just happened, Lettings Legislation in 2022, looking ahead with Robert Bowell of Dutton Gregory. From now on, we're actually going to be dropping our webinar recordings as podcasts just after they happen. So if you do prefer to listen to the webinars as a podcast, you can do that straight away. However, our webinars are now CPD certified. So if you do want to earn that CPD credit, make sure you register for them at goodlord.co slash newsagent and you can still watch them on demand and earn that CPD credit. But for now, here is the recording of this morning's webinar. Welcome to the latest Good Lord webinar. If we haven't met or if you're new to our webinar series, my name is William Reeve and I'm your host for today. My background is as a technology entrepreneur. I've founded, backed or been a board member for a variety of tech companies in the UK, such as Love Film, Zoopla, Nutmeg and Dunelm. But for the last four years, I've spent my days as the CEO of Goodlord. For those of you who don't know Goodlord, we're a technology company with an award-winning letting software platform that allows agents to manage the entire tenancy process in one place. From referencing contracts and payments, right through to insurance and, recently announced, rent collection. As well as helping to reduce admin, increase revenue and improve the customer experience, um, our letting agents are helped to ensure compliance and automate their key legislative processes. And it's in that vein that we're running today's webinar. We're very uh, pleased to have Robert Bowell from Dutton Gregory join us again to answer any questions and guide us through the upcoming changes to the lettings legislation. Robert, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about yourself. Yes, good morning, everybody. Uh, I guess I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I work for a firm of solicitors, and I've been doing this sort of job in this industry for, to be honest, best part of 30 years. So I'm one of the few people around who can actually still remember when the Housing Act of 1988 was introduced, and someone came up with this wonderful idea of an assured short-term tenancy, as opposed to the old Rent Act tenancies and, and the like. And, of course, it's over that 30-year that career span that, We've seen our industry, William, just absolutely multiply. I mean, we are now a multi-billion dollar industry and the private rented sector is housing anywhere between 11 and 13 million people, depending on you know, which statistics you want to, we all pull out of the government websites. So it, it, it's a fantastic industry to be in and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And for my, my pains, yes, I'm normally talking about legislation which you're going to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I think the only um, slightly variant today is we're not talking about legislation we've got, we're talking about what we think is going to be around the corner because it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge for everybody what's, what's coming over the next couple of years. Absolutely, yeah. Um, no, super. Thank you, Robert. Well, look, just a bit of housekeeping before we get going. Um, if you've got any questions during the webinar, please use the Q&A section on Zoom. We'll try and answer them either during the relevant section or at the end of the webinar. We've had a variety of questions in advance. Thank you for that. And we'll be doing some live polling as we go to um, get, get people's feedback and, and input literally in real time. Uh, but uh, when those of you who've signed up will see that we've um, given you the option to submit any questions already. Thank you to all of those who have. We've had a whole variety of different questions. Uh, and for any further ones, as I say, get them into the Q&A box. Um, just um, before we get into any of those questions, Robert, I'm going to hand over to you to give us a bit of an update on um, this uh, regulation of property agents what's, and what, how it's progressing and what, if anything, is going on. 
Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, well, the background really is a report that came out over two years ago now by um, a whole body of, of, of industry um, um, representatives. There were about 10 different organisations represented on, on, on this, this, this committee. And together they produced a regulation of property agents report. Now, it made all sorts of recommendations, but the background was this realisation that by and large, our industry is totally unregulated. And as I said a moment ago, we are housing anything between 11 and 13 million people in this country. And we handle literally billions of pounds every year in deposits, in rent. And the government at the time was making noises about, well, shouldn't the industry be regulated in some way? So instead of waiting for the government to come and hit us with a big stick, um, the body, uh, the, well, so the industry, got together and, and produced this, this fairly detailed report. And they made a whole series of recommendations. I mean, number one, they said that, you know, it, it's crazy that we don't actually have a definitive list of landlords. So why don't we have a system whereby landlords have to register to say, yes, they are a landlord? Number two, why don't we make sure that there is um, a licensing system for letting agents across the country? And before you can get your license, you have to show a certain degree of, of, of competence, if you like. You need some sort of basic qualification. Now, that were the two really big recommendations they came out with. And the report was published just over two years ago. All these recommendations went to government and everyone made the right noises. Um, it would be a bit, of a bit of a sea change for the industry to get up to speed. But that was two years ago. And I have to say that since then, not a great deal has happened. Um, one of the problems we do have in our industry is that we have a, a bit of a revolving door when it comes to the identity of housing ministers. And of course, we all remember that back in the summer, we have the latest housing minister, uh, Michael Gove, although he's now also the minister for, for levelling up as the, in, the department's been rechristened. And when he published his priorities back in September, priority number one was building more homes. And I totally get that. Building more homes on, on brown sites. Um, but ROPA, this report, didn't actually appear in his list of priorities. The Renters Reform Bill, which um, is going to be talked about later, didn't appear in his list of priorities. So we're waiting to see what, what, what Michael Gove is going to be doing over the next few months. Um, but say, he wants to build more housing, which is fantastic. And he wants to increase the number of young people who have access or the ability to buy their own property. But the interesting thing about the regulation of property um, agents and the qualification it's not that every agent is going to have to have some sort of qualification. It doesn't quite work like that. There will be defined areas where you need a qualification and where you don't. But that's really what the, um, uh, the report was all about. Now, we can go into the details, but the last thing in Parliament um, that, that dealt with this, leg uh, this proposed legislation was a question and answer session in October in the House of Lords. Now, Baroness Hayter, a name some of you may have come across, she's a, a bit of a stalwart for our industry. She raised the issue with um, Lord Greenhow, the, the uh, government representative in the House of Lords, and asked him in a very nice, very polite manner, you know, what has happened to the, the report? And um, I've got, got the printout from Hansard. And um, basically, um, the guy said, well, you know, we're looking at it. It's on the minister's desk. And there were various follow-up questions from other members of the House of Lords, all aimed at trying to find out what's happening. And in 150 different ways, government representatives basically said, well, nothing is happening. It's on the minister's desk. We'll let you know when it goes forward. So where this is going to be in three months or six months' time, I really don't know. Because when the report was published back in 2019, we all thought, yeah, it would be pushed through quite quickly. We'd yeah. see regulation, we'd see qualifications coming in within a five-year period. Well, of course, that was 2019. 
Um, you know, we had the pandemic of 2020 and, you know, it's hit so many areas of political reform uh, for six. So we, we just don't know. But we can look at the individual details in a moment. Yeah. No, and the crux of it is likely to centre on uh, level three qualification, isn't it? So maybe we can just talk about that for a second. So um, just a reminder for people, this this is the um, almost A level, if you like, for the... Yeah, industry. it is. I mean, ALNA produces various qualifications. They sort of supervise, they, they teach, they, they award the qualifications. You know, it's one, two, three, four. Now, if you like, levels one and two are fairly basic entry level um, uh, into the industry. By the time you get to level three, as you said, William, this is more akin to an A level. So it's not something you can simply turn up to the exam and wing it, as it were, on the day. There's got to be some serious study going into level three. And of course, there's also a level four, which I'll come on to in a moment. But there on the screen, you'll see that the basic elements of the level three award, um, health and safety, security, general law. So, you know, that gives you a, a fairly wide background, which would be, you know, a transportable skills of virtually any industry that's dealing with, with the general public. Um, then you've got specific legal aspects of letting and management. And of course, the scary thing is, I remember a former president of Arla, Valerie Bannister, coming out at one conference saying there are something like 600 different rules and regulations that we in the industry have got to cope with on a daily basis. Well, to be honest, that was six or seven years ago. How many rules and regulations there are now? I really don't know. And of course, if we do get the Roper report um, push through and the other bits of legislation we can talk about, you know, it, it could be seven, it could be 800 bits. Before. So there's an awful lot out there, which, you know, in our industry, we, we really have to think about. Um, yeah. Then one of the papers will be, say, residential property letting, what happens in practice, you know, what happens actually in your office. Um, and then you've got residential property management practice, which is, you know, um, it's all to do with uh, long-term lets. Now, if you, start the course most people reckon you can do it within 12 months 18 months you know if you're doing a full-time job you're trying to do it at home in the evening but you should be able to get through it within 12 months and it's a relatively straightforward exam it's pass or fail but once you've got that qualification it's recognized right the way throughout the industry and you know if the roper report goes through as originally recommended it will enable you to work in the industry anywhere in the country. It's great. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, level four qualification. Um, you've got to bear in mind that level three qualification is sort of A-level standard. Level four is somewhere between A-levels and degree. And what the original report suggested was that level three is great if you're doing viewings, if you're doing appraisals, you know, you're looking after contract documentation, what I call the mundane routine stuff that we all do nine to five, Monday through to Saturday. If you are an owner of a business or if you are supervising staff in a significant way, then the recommendation of Roper is you should go one further and you should get a level four qualification. But say, to what extent that is going to be implemented, I mean, we, we, we just don't know. But that was the original recommendation, which is now some, some two years old. <clears throat> So let's just have a look at this. So I'd like to do our first poll, actually, uh, and just find out how many people at the moment have got one of these. So people could just quickly, those of you who are on, online, uh, I've got two questions for you. Firstly, uh, do you yourself already have a level three lettings qualification? And secondly, is your the people in your team or your branch, um, what, what, roughly what percentage do you think of, the, of that, um, of your team have got, have got this qualification? So just give people a moment to fill this in. Robert, you and I are not allowed to vote on this one, I'm afraid. 
Um, yeah, well, this, this is the weird thing. I mean, I am an examiner for Arla, so I do actually set some of the level three um, questions. But I have to say, we um, um, I don't have a level three qualification myself. I mean, I hope I would pass my exam if it came to it. What we do sometimes get, though, on the, on the telephone helpline um, are Arla members phoning up with questions, which I suspect come from old papers, which they've pulled out. We try and be very polite and say, well, we can't answer exam questions. That's, that's really a bit below the belt. Um, but I think most people who've been in the industry for any period of time should get, you know, most of those questions right after, you know, a bit of studying. So here are the results. Yeah, super. So uh, what we're seeing here is about a third of the um, people on this webinar have, have already got the qualification. That's great. Another uh, sixth of them are um, working on it. And uh, that leaves, um, in fact, it's, it's almost half of them have already got it, actually. And that leaves a third with without it. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, and um that's looks like that's um, roughly consistent um, across the group here. It feels like um, we've got some branches where fewer than half of people have got it, but most most branches, either half or the majority, have, have already got this thing. But definitely not many branches where everybody's already qualified. So there's definitely going to be work to do here, isn't there? There's work to do, but I think you know we've got to understand that when we get the Roper report fully implemented, there's going to be quite a lot of publicity and it'd be a great USP for a given branch to say every single member of staff has got the appropriate qualification. Um, it really would be a selling point. And from the point of view of the individuals, of course, say once you've got the qualification, yes, I guess it is portable, but it does look good on your CV. It really does. Yeah, super. Um, so let's take some questions here. We've got a few questions from um, people who's already submitted. So, um, You've answered, I think, the first one, which is when is this likely to come into force? Where, if I heard you correctly, we still still don't know that yet. We're eagerly waiting to see what the um, minister's going to come up with. Um, but there's a question from Karen Southern um, at Kernsey Property Services Limited, who's just asking, will there be any form of financial support for uh, or training for, for people given the 120-hour um, expected requirement for this? I think I can say hand on heart, there'll be no financial support coming from government. I mean, you know, they're they're just not in that that ballpark at the moment. I mean, I would hope that if you as an individual are in paid employment with a given agency, then your employer would see the benefit of having fully qualified staff. Now, I know it's not quite the same, but, you know, here we're a firm of solicitor, Dutton Gregory, um, and we encourage all our staff to take extra examination get extra qualifications on the way to becoming a fully qualified solicitor and yeah we give our staff day release um, we give them financial support to pay for the examinations um, and it's got to be encouraged but if the question is will there be any financial support from the government well i can't say for definite but i think the answer is probably going to be absolutely not but i think most employers would actually recognize the benefits the value of having a fully qualified uh, team in their office estate's a great usp compared to your competitors on the, on the high street and I'm sure if you ask very nicely, yeah, majority of employers will be giving some sort of financial support. Yeah, fair enough. And what about a question from Lucy Lawton-Smith here at Penny and Sinclair? Um, what about people where the original qualifications were gained a few years ago? Is there a cutoff point where exams have to be retaken? Well, at the moment, no. One of the things that did come out in the report was the fear that you might suddenly get a lot of, as you say, older members of the profession disappearing overnight. I mean, I can, I can... I mean, if someone said to me tomorrow, I'm going to go and do my solicitor exams all over again, I think I'll put my hands up in horror and just walk out the door. Um, And that's a fear which the committee actually had. And they said, no, what we're going to do is if people haven't got enough qualification, they've got level two, we're not going to make them go all the way through from beginning all the way to the end. We'll try and get them to do a a top up qualification to get them to level three or perhaps level four if they're known in the business. But they will introduce it. Well, the idea is to introduce this over a number of years. Um, the, The 
term they use is grandfathering, you know, where you've got so many years experience and that will count towards your qualification. But the report did make it absolutely clear that experience alone without some sort of um, level three qualification is not going to be enough. If you did your level three qualification 10 years ago, you might have to do a refresher course. If you did your level three five years ago, you're probably all right. One of the things I would say as an examiner myself is think about all the changes we've had over the last few years. Um, What I wouldn't want as a landlord is to go to an agent who qualified 10 or 15 years ago and has done nothing since to keep up to date with all the changes. So there will be a cutoff point. I expect it might be five years, but there will be a runoff period. So she say the older members of the industry like me would get a reasonable opportunity to take some qualifications. We wouldn't expect it to be, you know, handing them resignations overnight. Yeah. Um, We've got a couple of questions here asking really about how this varies role by role. So Mikel Babler at Henley's Estates, just wondering whether admin and maintenance colleagues will be required to do this. Is it three or level three, level four? And also Stuart Reynolds at Queely and Companies, wondering whether... Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, ...between residential agents and block managers. Okay, well, let's let's deal with um, who needs qualification first of all. What the report suggests is that we should recognise what they call reserved actions or reserved bits of work within a letting agency. Now, if you imagine when you open your office in the morning, there are all sorts of jobs from, you know, opening the post to answering the telephone, whatever. So not every job in a letting agency is going to need a qualified person to deal with it. Now, and if you've got pens or paper, I can, I can run through it. There are actually seven reserved bits of work. So the first one is viewings. If you conduct viewings, you will need a qualification. If you conduct appraisals, you'll need a qualification. If you're signing a contract on behalf of a landlord, yes, you need a qualification. Um, if you're giving direct advice to a landlord or to a tenant, yep, you need the qualification. If you're instructing contractors, if you're handling money, or if you're giving advice on health and safety compliance issues, yes, again, you will need a qualification. All those, those seven areas of work, you'll need to be qualified. But if you're not doing any of that, You don't need to worry about the qualification. So, you know, you have this rather strange situation. Let's suppose, you know, you're you're a receptionist in a typical lettings office. Now, if a new landlord comes in and says, I'm a new landlord, I'd like to sign up. Could you tell me about your services? You don't need to be qualified to do that meet and greet. You don't. It's not on the list. But, of course, if you suddenly say to the landlord, well, yes, we've got a property like yours down the road. It's on the market for, you know, £1,500 a month. That's what we could get for your property. Well, all of a sudden you've crossed over the line from simply being the meet and greet, the reception person, as it were, who doesn't need a qualification to being advice on what the rental income would be. Yes, you need your qualification. So if nothing else, it's going to mean the larger agencies are going to have to think long and hard about job demarcation. Um, You know, ideally, everybody should get qualified so we don't have to worry about it. But I know there will be some agents who are a little bit worried about, you know, mass exodus of staff or cost of all this stuff. So job demarcation in the future is going to be probably a bit more important because it's qualification thing than it has been now. Now, there's a question there. Sorry, go on. Go on with yeah, you. well, actually, we've had a few on the chat as well, actually. Actually, one one asking whether uh, you solicitors are going to have to do these other exams as well. <laughs> I really don't know. I sincerely hope not. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's a good question. I mean, the thing about solicitors is, you know, we do our examinations on the, you know, the, the week before we qualify. And after that, we don't have to do anything else. We've got to do, um, you know, um, CPD, keep our training up, but not in particular areas. So, yeah, it'd be quite a good idea. We can talk about um, 
housing courts later and solicitors doing that sort of work where they are specialising in housing matters. But no, I think at the moment I might still be doing my ALA updates. I and won't have a level three qualification, although I will be setting some of the questions for your exams. You know, it's not just ALA, is it? There are there are other other qualifying. Oh bodies yeah, I'm that. sorry, this is wrong. I, I I keep focusing on ALA, um, simply because you know they are the big trade body. But um, the report that Europa produced doesn't mention ALA as such. It can be anybody that wants to put itself forward to have a comparable um, examination. Now, you know, examination boards across the country um, can actually award the ability to organisations to run their own exams and get proper accreditation. But the idea of having these awarding bodies is that the exams will be broadly similar and certainly the same degree of complexity, whether it's an exam set by, say, RICS or by ALA, maybe even by the you know, National Housing and National Landlords Association. So there will be lots of bodies putting themselves forward to actually run these qualifications. I guess ALA is probably the oldest, but it's, it's wrong of me to concentrate on them just because they've been here the longest Um, Um, there are other organizations out there and i think being quite mercifully about it this is a way for different examination boards to expand their reach um and for colleges certainly colleges higher education colleges across the country to actually reach um, a new clientele that they may not have done previously now if you think about it there is um, a bit somewhere i think in the report about apprenticeships there are a number of colleges now running courses you know, in, in property management and estate agency. And of course, these sort of level three qualifications would be perfect to complement the courses they're already offering to full-time students. Yeah, so, and as, 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 we've got a question on that vein, actually, from Sophie Yates, who says she's got a BSc, an honours, an honours BSc in estate management, has been in the industry for over 30 years. She also remembers the 1988 Housing Act. Uh, and um, she's just wondering, does she get any level of exemption, given that the degree covered all, all aspects of property, including law? Yeah, almost certainly. But at the moment, there is nothing concrete. And these are just ideas. I would say, yes, you will definitely get some exemption. Hopefully, I might get some exemption if I go for level three. But, you know, if you, like me, Sophie, you know, you haven't done an exam for 30 years, you're going to have to do something to show that you're up to speed with the current legislation. Some because the change you've had, you know, year in, year out are just phenomenal. But I keep on coming back to this point that I can't give you definitive answers. I know what the report says. It's now up to government to decide which way they want to go. But yeah. almost certainly, people like you and me, we will get some exemption, but not total exemption. Yeah, no, and look, we're all having to do continuous professional development, aren't we? And actually, I just want to remind people, actually, that this, this webinar does count as credit towards um, CPD. So um, absolutely, this is part of how we all, all keep up to date and uh, encourage people, encourage, encourage your friends. This is, a, this, is a, this is a good way to make sure you're, you're aware of what's going on. I think maybe we should move on to the Renters Reform Bill, though. Uh, so we've got um, another another slug of questions coming in on that one. Um, let's just um, let's just get organised here. So um, got a bunch of questions on this too. Um, uh, actually, I'm going to start off with the the um, I'm going to start off with a slide actually from showing some some um, a survey some survey results we've already got from earlier in the year. Um, and we were just asking the industry people in the industry what sort of impact people are expecting from um, the renters reform bill. And you can see here that um, certainly as far as Section 21, for example, which is proposed to be repealed, um, very much, I think, people are expecting this to be in line with what I think are the policy objectives here. Major positive benefit for tenants, potentially somewhat of a negative benefit uh, for agents, uh, a major negative benefit for 30% of agents um, here. So this is this is quite a big big change to the industry. Um, it's got a variety of things coming in. It's got repeal of Section 21. It's got changes to Section 8. It's talking about lifetime deposits. Um, and um, 
I, I thought let's um, let, let's do another poll actually just before we kick off here. So it'd be useful to understand what what people are expecting on this call as to the the biggest component of this. So uh, landlord registry. Um, lifetime deposits, Section 28 changes or Section 21 or something else. Let's just take a moment to understand how people are expecting the, the bill here from what they know about it so far. And then, then we'll start start discussing that in more detail. Um, got half a dozen questions in advance and some more coming in right now. So um, just give people a moment to think about that. And um, yeah, let's move to see what the results are for that. Here we go. So section 21, very much the big one uh, from the, the perception in the industry. Um, but um, lifetime deposits, landlord registry, not not uh, being ignored here either. And section eight, somewhat of a lesser impact. That's the expectation. Do you agree with that, Robert? Yeah, I think, William, that does not come as any surprise at all. In fact, I was expecting the repeal of section 21 would be about 99 percent, but we're not quite there. Um, yeah, I mean, the proposal at the moment goes all the way back to um, what the government were talking about in May of 2019. In the Queen's speech at that stage, they announced that, yes, there would be um, a repeal of a Section 21 notice, the ability to get property back without any fault being shown. Now, this proposal had at the time total cross-party support. It was repeated in the Tory manifesto before the election at the end of 2019, and it was in the last Queen's speech. So it's it's coming. We know, we, we know it's coming. We, we, we just don't know when. Now, Basically, all the parties are saying it's wrong that a landlord should have the ability to get back a property simply because he wants it back. No fault, no real sin to sell the property. You know, he doesn't need to occupy it for his own purposes. And that, that's got to be wrong. So that's really what the government are aiming for. Now, you know, at first, at first glance, you think, oh, my goodness, what's that going to do? To the market, if you suddenly say to a landlord, you're renting out your property, but we can't guarantee you'll get it back. You know, the initial concern is that landlords will just leave the market in droves, which might be great for Michael Gove's stated aim of getting more people to buy their property because there'll be, you know, a glut of smaller properties on the market. But it's not going to help when, you know, anything between 11 and 13 million people in this country need the, the private rented sector to provide accommodation. So the first thing to realise is that they've done this in Scotland already. If you are north of the border, you'll know that in 2017, they effectively got rid of the Section 21 procedure up there. And surprise, surprise, the industry hasn't fallen apart. You know, we haven't seen rents in Scotland go through the roof. We haven't seen a mass exodus from the market. So although I... I'm quite fearful what might happen. And I see the 76% of people there think they're probably fearful as well. That's not necessarily the empirical evidence if you go to Scotland. So it may not be as bad as some of us might think it could be. Uh, but you've got to bear in mind in Scotland, they have tightened up the equivalent of their Section 8 procedure. So now, you know, we think about Section 8 notices for rent arrears, don't we? Well, in Scotland, you have got the ability to get back your property if you want to occupy it for yourself, or you really need to sell it. So, you know, there was that, there was that sort of measure to, to ameliorate the situation for landlords. But of course, the big thing in Scotland 
is they change the way all these cases are dealt with. Um, in Scotland, you have a tribunal, a bit like a housing court, if you like. Um, they don't necessarily have fully qualified judges sitting um, in these housing courts. Often they have lawyers like me who have done, you know, a lifetime of landlord and tenant type litigation who know their way around the court system, know their way around the statutes. And the whole thing, you know, anecdotally is working so much better than the old sheriff's court used to. And if we do something like that here south of the border, if we could couple the abolition or the significant change in the way Section 21 notice operates. But again, give the landlord the right to get their property back in given instances where he must have it back. And if we can do something to improve the court service, yeah, those 76% of people, William, who voted as a major concern, you know, they, they may not be, be too concerned. But that's the way forward. Now, the Renters Reform Bill, I say it was repeated in the Tory manifesto in 2019. Then, of course, we had the, the pandemic. It was repeated in the second Queen's speech. And then last summer, we were told that a green, sorry, a white paper was imminent. Now, you know, a white paper is what comes before an actual bill. A bill is what goes before Parliament to be debated. A, a white paper is the government's idea as to what should be in that bill. Now, you know, we were all expecting it probably October time, but it didn't arrive. Um, as I said a moment ago, Michael Gove arrived at his new desk and the ministry announced that it would be published um, in 2022. I would hope that we might get in the first part of 2022, but if it doesn't come until the end of 2022, well, so be it. But that white paper will crystallise the government's thinking. Now, normally, the gap between a white paper and an actual bill can be anything up to, you know, 18 months or two years. So I've got to say, at the moment, yeah, let's say we have a white paper at Easter. I don't think we'll actually see the renters reform bill until probably the beginning of 2023. So this isn't imminent. But I think the industry is right to be concerned. Um, landlords will have picked up on what may be happening in, in the general press. So we've got to answer their concerns. We don't know what's happening with Section 21s, but we know they're probably going. If you look at the Welsh experience, um, in Wales, they're, they're, they're changing the whole way tenancies are set up there. And at the moment and in future, their equivalent of a Section 21 is going to be a six-month notice. So yeah. they've still got the ability to, to get a property back without fault, but it's six months. And it could be that we have some sort of compromise halfway between what they've done in Wales halfway between what they've done in Scotland. We we just don't know. But as the slide says, um, other things on the reform bill are going to be a landlord's registry. Um, if you're in Scotland, if you're in Wales, yeah, you've got to register if you're a landlord. Um, if you don't do that, there are all sorts of penalties to pay. But in England, we don't know how many landlords we've got. There is no single registry at all. But that is probably going to be in the renters reform bill. Um, lifetime deposits will come along to a moment. Yeah. One other thing which could, of course, be in the renters reform bill is this Roper report, where they'll try and have one big piece of legislation dealing with everything. And of course, the other issue which someone's going to have to consider is whether a landlord who is self-managing his property, does he have to have some sort of qualification. Now, again, if we follow the Welsh model, um, you know, a landlord is managing his own property down there has got to do a, a fairly basic course so he can tick the box. So he knows what a tenancy room looks like. He knows what a gas safety certificate is. But again, landlords who don't want to use agents will have to get, I suspect, some sort of qualification, which is another 
great thing for our industry. Yep, you know, yep. what do you want to do, Mr. Landlord? Do you want to go and get a qualification or do you want to pay us you know, our commission and we'll do it all for you? So yep. there are going to be great opportunities ahead. Lifetime deposits on the screen. Yeah, we'll come back to those in a moment. Actually. Oh, okay. I just want to, okay. I want to take a couple of questions on Section 21, Section 8 first. Um, so actually a quick one from Stephen Kimball on the chat is, is just wondering how, how Scotland works. Does, is it true the penalties in Scotland are low, even if Section 8 is, is used... Um, is, is used falsely. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, a general problem, I mean, not just in, in England, Scotland, Wales, right the way across the country, that there are all sorts of sanctions out there if dodgy landlords or, dare I say, dodgy agents try to cut corners and do things they shouldn't. Um, people in local government are not good at enforcing the law we've got. I mean, they, they, they just aren't. It's not seen as a priority. It's a cost to the ratepayers at a time when local authority budgets are under significant strain. Now, those of you watching from England will probably know that we changed the system here in 2016. Prior to 2016, if there were a breach of any of the legislation we've got, yeah, trading standards or local authority could prosecute you in the magistrate's court and there'd be a fine. It was slow, it was costly, and the fine, if there was one at the end of the day, didn't go to the local authority or the ratepayers who were funding the enforcement action, it went to central government. So there's zero incentive to do anything. But at least here in England, in 2016, when the law changed, it now gives a local authority the ability to issue what's called a civil penalty notice, a bit like a, a parking ticket, if you like. So, you know, if you are guilty of a breach of the legislation, you simply get notification of the authority saying, we're fining you. And that fine, that civil penalty notice could be up to £30,000. And the great thing about that is any money which comes in from the fine, from the civil penalty notice, is kept by the local authority to fund right. further enforcement action. So, um, you know, in some parts of the country, I mean, especially some of the London boroughs, they have used this new system since 2016 to actually build up cash reserves to do more and more enforcement. Now, right. they don't seem to do that in Scotland. Whether right. when the Renters Reform Bill goes through, that system will be implemented to enforce whatever the new legislation says, it probably will. Um, but say, yeah, it, it, it's a problem. We have got penalties, but across the country, all, all the devolved governments, we're not good on the actual enforcement side. Yeah. Um, key question asked, I think, on behalf of many by Damien Simone at Edmonton Estates is, so as it currently looks, when when this eventually comes into force, which, as you explained, maybe a bit later than people think, um, would the abolition of Section 21 be retrospective to existing tenancies or just on rolling forward with new tenancies? It's probably the latter. It's probably rolling forward. Now, I mean, all I would say is that Parliament in this country is supreme. It can do whatever it wants. So in theory, it could backdate all the reforms. Hardly ever happens. Now, if you think about the number of properties out there that have been funded by commercial mortgages, those commercial mortgages have all been put through on the basis that if something goes horribly wrong, the landlord can get that property back. Now, if we suddenly said to lenders, well, all this legislation is going to be you know, retrospective, I think a lot of lenders out there would put you know, more than a bit of a big pressure on the Tory party to change their mind. So although I can't give a guarantee, I suspect what will happen is there will be a date announced in the bill or perhaps even in the act, which says this legislation will come into force with effect from 1st of April, whatever it may be. And it tends to be April and October when legislation comes yeah. into force in um, in our sector, um, which would give landlords a bit of a run in. Now, yeah. 
The problem with that, of course, is if you suddenly say to landlords, from the 1st of October next year, you won't be able to serve a Section 21 notice. Well, if a landlord is thinking of selling up, what's he going to do if he's got six months to get things sorted out? You know, you could see a flurry of Section 21 notices right the way across the country. Um, and that would have a bit of a knock-on effect to our industry. And of course, if we do take any significant number of properties out of the market, what's that going to do to pressure on rents? Yeah. Um, you know, in many ways, great from our industry, rents go up, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not good from a tenant's point of view. And I'm sure yeah, the government are going to take that into consideration. But the alternative, making everything suddenly retrospective, I, I just don't see the government doing it for all sorts of economic reasons. Yeah. I'm just going to do one more question on the reform bill before we get on to looking at lifetime deposits. Uh, but Phil Keddy in Sunshine Rentals wonders whether, given the Coronavirus Act and the lengthening of the Section 21 notice period, um, do you see Section 21 being abolished or maybe just amended? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I'm just a moment ago in Wales, they've gone down the six month route. In, you know, under the coronavirus legislation, it's still six months in Wales for Section 21 today. But when they change their legislation or they change their letting businesses, you know, in a year or so's time, the equivalent of Section 21 there will be six months. So I think that that will be a great compromise, but it doesn't necessarily get round the problem all the main political parties have with a lack of security of tenure. You know, um, those on the left wing of, of, of the Labour Party would really like to have tenants given security of tenure, you know, for life. Well, that's not going to happen. And we're not going back to the old rent act days where once you put a tenant in, you simply couldn't get them out. But no political party likes the idea of every six months or 12 months or longer periods, you know, the landlord having the ability to get rid of the tenant and put somebody else in. What government don't seem to appreciate is that, you know, as a landlord, and I speak as a landlord personally, what you don't want is to keep churning your tenants. You know, you actually want a tenant to sit there for a long period of time. Mm. You get a good one, you want to keep them. Mm. The ones you want to get rid of, I have to say, tend to be the bad tenants, which is why if we are scrapping Section 21, we've got to have some sort of alternative, a strengthened Section 8 uh, situation and a more streamlined court service so we can properly deal with those, those bad tenants. Um, you know, Shelter has been incredibly vocal on behalf of tenants um, and, you know, on the Arla side, the RIC side, the other professional bodies representing landlords. They've been vocal, but probably not vocal enough. Um, no, being a total no, cynic, William, you know, I come back to this point that there are always more votes from tenants than there are from landlords, but yeah, that's right. just me being, you know, an old age pension and a cynic, I'm afraid. That's true. Although, you know, there, there are somewhere between one and two million landlords in the country, aren't there? There's still quite a lot of votes. Yeah. Um, William Bell Knight just actually, having said I was going to do one more question, I've got a, f- a final one, a bonus question, uh, because he, he's just picking up on this point around streamlining the court system, wondering, wondering whether there might be almost a specific housing court, given the backlog and so on. Is there any any sign of streamlining in... in it's the in cost. The I mean, it, it, it is the cost. They've done it in Scotland, and Scotland, it works superbly. Um, Say so they have judges sitting there, but judges tend to be, you know, solicitors like me who have got housing experience sitting there in court. It's a streamlined system, and it's working really well. Okay. If we did that in England, my rhetorical question is this. Would there be an additional budget to fund it properly? Or would the budget of the existing court system be slashed to fund the um, housing court? Now, you know, the coffers at the moment, the public coffers are just about empty for all the reasons we know. And although I would love to see a housing court, 
I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I really don't. It'd be no, great no. if we did, but I, I hope I'm wrong. I think no. the best we can hope for is some sort of accelerated procedure for a Section 8 notice. Now, those of you who've been to court will know if you're going to court on a Section 21 notice, you can either ask for an old-fashioned hearing, you know, there's a delay, 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 or you can actually ask for the accelerated procedure where hopefully you'll get a court order, a possession order, simply on the basis of the paperwork. And I'd see no reason why we can't try and get something like that for a Section 8 application as well. But say that that needs you know, judicial reform. Fair enough. All right. Look, thank you, Robert. Let's let's move on to um, lifetime deposits. Another another concept, as you said, is mentioned in the Conservative Party manifesto. It's been mentioned repeatedly since. Um, and uh, let's let's start with sort of looking at how what, what expectations are about this. So. Um, we did some work on this earlier in the year. I'll just show you that on the next slide, which looked at what, what people felt the impact was going to be. Again, pretty similar pattern to um, the previous, the Section 21 slide we looked at a moment ago, which agents really expecting this to be uh, very positive for tenants, uh, negative for agents, admittedly not as negative as the Section 21 changes. Um, I think the next question, though, is really kind of, what, how is this exactly going to work? And before we get your expertise on that, Robert, I thought we should just uh, put, that, put, put this one to the poll, because there are lots of different uh, schemes suggested here, uh, insurance-backed schemes, loan schemes, government guarantee, some, some form of new agency, or uh, I won't be surprised if people, people take, uh, I don't know here, but, but uh, just interested, first of all, in what, what people's expectations are about how, how lifetime deposits work, given the lack of information we've had so far. So we'll just give that a moment to fill in the poll. Um, and uh, I dare say there are some other methods we haven't thought about for, on this poll, but uh, anyway, here, here are four of the ones that do definitely come up in conversation. Let's have a look at the results for that, please. Here we go. So, yeah, most the biggest single answer is actually insurance-backed, fair enough, but almost as uh, big as the I don't know. A um, few people are thinking government guarantees or new government agencies, so um, 15% of people thinking that, or uh, the last one here is some form of loan scheme to sort of bridge from one deposit to another. Um, uh, but, yeah, Robert, what, what do you think? How do you think this is going to work? Well, I must say, William, if I'd been taking that poll, and I said I couldn't, I would have ticked the I don't know box. Right. Um, I mean, let's go, let's, let, we'll come back to insurance for the moment. I mean, a loan scheme, great idea. Um, but where would the loan come from? I cannot see the government putting any money into this. The government are going to expect us in the industry to come up with a solution. And of course, we've already got, you know, my deposits, TDS, um, and DPS down in Bristol. We have got three agencies. Um, that operate effectively under government license and they deal with deposits. So I think government are going to be looking to those agencies to come up with solutions. Now, you know, bearing in mind that the majority, over 50% of tenants get back their entire deposit at the end of a given tenancy. The issue I see is number one, delays, because when a tenant moves out on a Monday morning, there are always delays in getting an assessment of the property completed with the checkout clerk, getting in the landlord to agree there are or not dilapidations. So we've got that delay, which necessarily means that the, the deposit isn't going to be 100% available on day one to actually move to, to a new landlord. Um, we've then got the dispute. I mean, if a dispute is genuine and there is a deduction, where is the top up payment going to come from for that new new uh, landlord, that new, new deposit moving over. I think that at the end of the day, the practical problems in actually having money moving around or sitting with a scheme and being credited to one or other landlord are going to be such that most, most agents are going to have to say, look, can we go down the deposit replacement route, which is insurance? You know, you're going to be saying to, you know, the majority of your, your tenants, look, it's, it's not going to work in the way you perhaps think it might. 
go down the insurance route, which is great in a way, great for the insurance industry. Um, you know, not too bad for for agents, I guess, because you know there will be there will be commission to be earned. But of course, insurance costs money, and ultimately, if the insurers are making a profit on every insurance um, deposit scheme they sell, who's paying for that? Well, ultimately, it's going to be the poor old tenant. So I, I suspect one of the reasons we haven't seen more from the government is they're scratching their heads work, wondering how it's going to work in practice. Whether, you know, the government put more pressure on the insurance industry to come up with better schemes, I simply don't know. But at the moment, I'm afraid I go with the 39% who have ticked the box saying, I simply don't know. No, fair enough. Um, so um, I think a few questions here. Um, we, one of them from Ashwin Patel at Acorn Properties. I was just wondering if, he, if we're also going to see some sort of concept of uh, lifetime tenancies. Um, well, you can always have a lifetime tenancy. I mean, technically speaking, an assured short-held tenancy um, can be for any period of time you want. Um, it could go on for life. Um, I don't think we're going back to the Rent Act days where effectively a tenant was given a lifetime um, tenancy by default. No, we might have lifetime deposits, but we won't have lifetime tenancies. But, you know, deposits are going to have to be topped up because whatever scheme the government come up with, there will be times when deposits have to be used in part to pay off a landlord who's releasing a tenant from their obligations. Um, inflation in, in rents means that if we keep at the five-week mark, which is the norm for most deposits, inflation in rent means that they're going to be topped up as the deposit gets bigger. So, yes, we can, but um, how it's going to work, I, I really don't know at the moment. No, anyway, that's very much the theme of the questions. Uh, Amanda Gill at St Andrews Bureau is just saying, how, how will this work? Is the deposits different for each property, depending on how, what the rent for the property is? And uh, Martin Melton at West West Parks Properties saying this feels like an administrative nightmare. Absolutely. Uh, really help the tenant. It's a common theme here. Um, and uh, Rachel Johnson at Little Mansions asking, how do you see this working to ensure it's fair to the current landlord and the new landlord? So a lot of lot of uh, open ended questions here, really. I mean, the problem you've got is there's always this inherent delay between a tenant moving out from one property into another. Um, you know, the, the the moving of your furniture might take an hour, but the sorting out the checkout report, the assessment for the damages, getting quotations, repair work that doesn't take hours. That takes days, if not weeks. And it's a, it's dealing with that gap which is the problem. If you hold back some of the deposit, you're prejudicing the new landlord. If you don't hold back the deposit, you're prejudicing the old landlord. And I just don't see a way of squaring that circle unless it's with some sort of insurance product. So Stephen Kimball is asking on the chat, uh, is it time that deposits were scrapped if Section 8 was strengthened to compensate? I'd be very reluctant to even go down that route, to be honest. Um, you know, if you have a bad tenant who disappears, yes, you've got your property back. But very often, you know, we in this industry, we're left holding judgments, court orders for outstanding rent, which we can never recover. At least if you've got a deposit, you've got enough money there, hopefully perhaps to pay the legal bills, getting the tenant out, and you have something left over to pay towards your losses. Um, I, I, having said that, I was um, a landlord of a student property for many years up in York. I never took a deposit. I never bothered. I always went to the students' parents and got them to sign joint and several guarantees. I have to say not many parents understood what joint and several guarantee was, but I found it much easier 
to deal with it that way than actually take a, a cash or an insurance type deposit. And it could well be that those are some of the alternatives that, you know, as an industry, we need to look at more guarantees um, and less in deposits. Certainly, you know, if you've got pets, you can't take an enhanced deposit because you've got a pet, but you may want to take a guarantee from a third party to make sure you've got the money there if there are significant damages at the end. Yeah, actually, Charlie Saunders asked, I was asking that a few minutes ago, just wondering whether this, all these reforms make it um, possible that landlords will just move their portfolio to students and HMOs, probably following your sort of logic. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I rented my property to students. I have to say you do tend to get a bit of a premium when you've got a, a small HMO and students in there. Um, and the great thing about students, I'm not trying to persuade people to get down the street, but the great thing about students is by and large, they leave at the end of the academic year. Um, so in all the years I had those properties, I never once went into court. I never once took a deposit and I had no problems. Um, but it's, it, it's horses to courses. Um, you know, a lot of councils now, have Article 4 declarations, which means you can't go from you know, single family occupancy to even a small HMO without getting planning permission, which is a complete nightmare in some areas. Um, but I think landlords need to look at the options ahead of them in the light of what we think is coming in 2022, maybe 2023. And I think if you're you're a letting agent, you want to be alive to those possibilities, at least have the conversation with your landlord, because if yeah. you don't have that conversation, you know, your rivals down the high street probably will be. Yeah. No, actually, we have just a couple of questions coming in there, focusing on the incentives for tenants here. So uh, one asking, isn't there an impact of lifetime deposits um, negative since it doesn't give the tenants any incentive to look after the place? And uh, Neville Craig wondering whether you might even imagine a tenant registry whereby tenants who've left a property having incurred arrears or damage are listed. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, on the first point, um, I, I tend to agree that if a tenant is moving out of a property in a year's time, and they think they're going to get their deposit back in a year's time, that does sharpen the focus, as it were, on what you're going to do to make sure the property is left in an acceptable condition. If the tenant believes they're not going to get their deposit back for 10 years because they'll be renting for 10 years, yeah, I, I guess logically there's a smaller incentive to look after the property, although if the effect of the deduction is going to be the same. Um, so, no, no, I, I, I totally get all that. What was the second point, William? Well, whether whether there could even be a registry um, for um, you know, yeah. re- recording kind of past misdemeanors, as it were. Well, I mean, interestingly, years and years ago, there was um, an organisation which had set itself up to maintain a register of dodgy tenants. Now, I mean, some of you will probably recall that under current legislation, we have a, um, a register of dodgy landlords, a uh, rogues gallery. We can't share it publicly uh, unless you go on to the London one. The rest of the country can only, can only be shared between local authorities, but that's another story. Now, when they tried to set one up privately for tenants, which I think is a brilliant idea, um, we ran into all sorts of problems with um, disclosure, with what was the precursor of GDPR issues, and ultimately the server had to be taken down. So, you know, what happens now is you tend to have discussions between agents in a given town, and you all know who the bad tenants are, but you don't keep a proper a proper record. You don't keep a proper log because GDPR issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I think it'd be great if we could persuade the government to have a, a rogues gallery of landlords, but also a rogues gallery of tenants. Now, great on the surface, I would ask this one rhetorical question. If you do end up with one of those tenants in a rogues gallery, which is a public document, how do you ever encourage that tenant to move on somewhere else? 
you have to go through the court process to get rid of them because by definition, if they're on the register, they'll never get another tenancy um, a town near you. So there are, there are pros and cons, but yeah, I, I think a rogues gallery of tenants, we've got one for landlords, would be an excellent idea. Very interesting. Um, good. So let's let's move on to any other questions, really. I'm very happy to take further questions in the, in the live Q&A. We've got a few that have come in already. Um, one's actually... Um, uh, we're moving moving quite quite uh, stage left here, but we're jumping on to EPCs, Robert. So Jan Simpson at HD Lettings is wondering about the band C requirement that's coming in. Any idea um, what will happen if properties can't achieve a well, band C and there any exceptions? Can I say at the moment, these are proposals. What um, Boris does, and he does it very well, is he floats all his ideas, waits to see what the reaction is from um, the industry, and then we get the legislation. So at the moment... The proposal is if you are going to be renting out a property new, you know, new tenant, then from probably April of 2025, yes, you've got to hit the C. You've got to be a C. And then from 2028, all existing properties that are tenanted must hit that C band. Now, it was quite difficult a few years ago going from the Gs and the Fs up to the Es, where we are now. Um, most commentators say it's going to be a quantum leap to go from E's all the way up to C's. I mean, the, the, the graph just gets steeper and steeper and steeper. What they're also talking about is having the cutoff point raised from three and a half grand to 10 grand. So basically at the moment, if you have to spend more than three and a half grand to get up to an E, that gives the landlord an exemption. They're saying that in 2025, to get up to a C, you'll have to spend potentially up to £10,000 before you get that exemption. Now, you know, the figures are just absolutely horrendous. Um, if you look at some of the reports coming in from local authorities, um, there is one, one local authority report which says, if you're in the north of England, where, you know, it's a bit colder, thank you very much, if you're in Scotland, you might have to spend up to 15% of the value of the property to get it up to a C. Um, ironically, if you're in England, we're a little bit warmer down here, in the south on the south coast, where, of course, properties are that much more expensive, capital value is higher, you might be sending only 2% of the capital value to get it up to scratch. So I wouldn't at the moment assume it's definitely going to be a C for new properties in 25 and definitely a C for existing properties in 28. But again, you've got to have the conversation with the landlord. Um, it's no good saying to the landlord, well, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. We don't know. It probably will happen. And landlords got to be warned that they should be putting money aside now towards that £10,000 they might be expected to pay to get each and every property up to scratch. If you say to a landlord, you know, one month before the rules come in, oh, you've got to spend up to £10,000 for your exempt, it's not going to happen. They've got to start putting money aside now of those capital improvements between now and 2025. Yeah, actually, there's a question along those lines from David Yates, Edwards Grounds Lettings, just wondering whether um, what happens when landlords won't won't comply or won't, won't play ball. He says, what to do with the landlord who is not or will not complete an EIRC on a property? Um, is the agent liable if they continue to manage the house or should they disinstruct? I think you've got to disinstruct. So first thing, to check your, you know, your landlord's terms of business, there should be a clause in every terms of business saying if the landlord does not comply with current legislation, you disinstruct him. Now, um, if we turn to the, the fines and the penalties that we mentioned earlier, um, at the moment, if a local authority wants to take action against um, somebody for breaching legislation, they can go against the landlord, which is fair game, or they can go against the agent. 
And the definition of an agent is someone who's collecting the rent. So although you and I might not be managing the property in what we accept as the, the standard definition of the term, we may not be managing it. If we're collecting the rent, that in theory does make us vulnerable to action from a local authority. Now, that having been said, if you you know go to the relevant government websites, there are all sorts of guidance notes for local authorities because you know government recognise there are going to be times when you know you you're giving advice to a landlord they're just totally ignoring you so in that sort of situation if you can prove you've given the appropriate advice most local authorities will go against the landlord not against you but ultimately if you're a landlord who will not play ball um you know your reputation is worth more than any single instruction i would literally think about getting rid of that particular landlord and that's where it's an epc with an eicr whatever it is you do not want to be in your local rag thank you very much as an agent that you know does not comply with legislation yeah fair enough um super and we've got a couple other questions quick one i think robert which is we talked about level three uh had a question as to whether you would recommend going straight to level three or whether you'd also, whether you suggest actually starting with levels one or two, one and two. Um, I would probably try and go straight to level three. Obviously if you do levels one and two, they're the introductory course. I mean, it does give you um, a background. If you've been in the industry for a number of years, to be honest, you should be able to do level one and level two in your sleep um, because it's really what you do every day of your working life. If you're, come straight into the industry yeah do level one do level two if you're working in the industry for a number of years i'd have a look at level three um yeah. you know talk to one of your colleagues who's got the the, the worksheets to level three see what you think the exam looks like but no if you've been doing the industry for five, four or five years you should go straight to level three yeah okay super um and actually a um follow-up one to the previous point from darren amado just wondering so this is in the scenario where the landlord won't play ball and you can't get them to complete an uh, electrical installation report what should could the agent consider doing it on their behalf and deducting the cost from the rent even without consent or would there be sort of negative consequences in that um no you could do that if you've got the appropriate clause in your tnc's um so just do it but can I ask you a question it's fine if the eicr comes back you know good bill of health property's absolutely fine property safe what if it comes back and says there are dangerous parts of the installation and you've got to take remedial work within 28 days you'll just open a proverbial pandora's box having got the eicr do you then try and get the work done yourself which may not be covered by your tnc's do you go back and say to the landlord oh landlord we asked you to spend 150 quid in the eicr by the way you've now got to spend three and a half grand getting the wiring redone so i i think in theory it's a great idea and if you know the property's going to pass, well, okay, no one's going to worry too much. But my question is, well, what if you don't pass the ACR? What if there are dangerous aspects to that property? What are you going to do next? I don't know there's an answer to that one. I think I have to say it's probably safer to disinstruct yourself and walk away. You know, there are more landlords out there, you know, who will appreciate what you do than the one who just won't talk to you about um, any sort of breach of the regulations. Yeah. Very good. All right. I'm going to final questions, just a probably more general one here from Hugh Howard Price. Just wondering, what are your thoughts on um, renting stock levels at the moment? Um, there was lack of stock before the pandemic, more legislation coming for landlords. So how, how do you think that's going to look moving forward? I have to say, I think stock levels are likely to decline. I mean, there are parts of the country where they'll increase. So I think they'll decline a whole number of reasons. Number one, we didn't get hit for CGT in the budget. That was predicted. 
I think at some stage in the budget in the next 12 months, we're going to see GT. And I think landlords know that. So if you were thinking of maybe selling up your property because you need the cash, would you do it before or after the next budget? So if you do it before, that's going to stop level. That's number one. Um, number two, the press will be full of the Section 21 abolition. And even though landlords may not understand what it means for them, there will be, you know, a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, my God, if I don't sell my property now, I won't get back. So I think those two things will hit stock levels. Now, conversely, of course, if stock goes down, what's going to happen to rents? It's supply and demand. Um, one statistic I did lift from the Shelter website the other day was the fact that we lost 22,000 properties in the social housing sector. Now, that's not properties been mislaid. Those have probably been sold off. Now, you know, in a situation where we're supposed to be building more properties every year, um, we've suddenly lost 22,000 properties that were rented out in the social sector. Um, so, again, it, it's all going the wrong way. Yeah. Stock levels are being squeezed, but what's going to happen to rents? The, 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 the ultimate nightmare, of course, is if stock levels do decline because of CGT, because of Section 21, because people are still buying properties from social landlords, if rents do start climbing significantly, and, you know, we've had a call for this in London, might we not have a government levelling up that wants to bring in some sort of rent cap, or at least a cap on rent increases? Now, you know, if you're in London, you have a mayor there who wants to do that. He hasn't got the power to do it, but, you know, in the past two years, he's made various noises about trying to get that that power from central government they haven't given it to him yet but that to my mind is the worry but at the moment yeah i think stock levels may be squeezed and that's going to have you know a knock-on effect for those you know who are renting yeah super i'm going to stop you there robert but uh, we're out of time but that's a fascinating uh fascinating last thing to end on really the, the law of unintended consequences um thank you very much for joining today don't forget everybody if you you've got access to all the content we've shared today on our news agent page if you if you just search for good lord news agent you'll you'll, you'll find a whole uh, treasure trove of of um material that should help you you can download the latest state of the lettings industry report that we've just published in september um and we'll be sending the link for the download for today's um cpd uh, eligible uh, webinar uh, along with the recording um in the next couple of hours thank you all for your time robert thank you very much for your time and expertise wish everybody a very very merry christmas and if anybody wants to chat to us um you're always welcome to book a call at goodlord.co forward slash book a call um but i really enjoyed uh, today's session robert and um hope you have a, have a very very good break you've earned it thank you